taking a big round of applause for our awesome worship team for that song and leading us so well this morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Christian. I'm our executive director of pastoral ministries here at TLCC. And it's a great pleasure to be able to spend these next few minutes sharing our message with you as a part of a series we recently started called Indestructible Us, Life in the New Normal, where we're talking about what it means to receive the indestructible power of Jesus Christ. So uh, Nietzsche, the 19th century philosopher, who I'm sure all of you have heard of at some point or another, once famously said, God is dead. God is dead. Now, he didn't literally mean that God got shot out of the sky or something like that. But he meant that as a, as a, as a, as a narrative and a, a hope for society that God had essentially lost his influence that systems of religion and belief lost their place in the world. Now, for Nietzsche, this was uh, uh, no, no necessarily positive hope for him. Now, he was not a believer in God, but whereas many people in the world who maybe don't believe in God today, they look back on Nietzsche and they go, yes, God is dead, thank goodness. The narrative of who God is and him oppressing us and all this kind of stuff, get rid of that. Now we can go do whatever what we want. Perhaps that's what we would think that Nietzsche would have said as an atheist philosopher. But in fact, Nietzsche, who did not believe in God, thought it was a bad thing that in society God was dead. And why was that? Well, Nietzsche knew that we needed a foundation for belief and hope in our lives in order to stay together as a society and a world. In fact, in light of Nietzsche believing that God was dead, he predicted the rise of communism that quickly came throughout the 20th century. Nietzsche predicted the death of millions of people that we ended up seeing in World War I and World War II within 40 years after his death. Nietzsche knew something that so many of us might not know in our world today, which is that if we do not have a goal or a hope or a foundation for why we are even living our lives, then we will essentially experience a brokenness. That without a foundation, we will fall through and have no great hope for our lives or vision for what our futures could look like. See, if we put our hope in broken things, then we will experience brokenness. I think we see this happening in our world in some ways today, and this is nothing necessarily new to, to our society, but when you look at polling, for instance, on optimism or hope in societies, and you pair it with what's going on in the economy of where that person lives, what's happening in the political uh, scene, what's happening in terms of wars with that nation, the polling of optimism goes directly and correlates directly up and down with the events and circumstances of the world around us. See, I believe that if we do not have an indestructible hope, something that we are looking towards, and if we don't believe that we have an indestructible power to get there, then we will experience destructibility. 
that we will experience a wavering in the wind depending on what's happening in our lives or society. And never will we feel like we have a strong confidence in where we are right now or where we are going. And that's what we're going to unpack today. See, I believe that if we put our hope, and that in fact we must put our hope in Christ's promised future and his power to get us there. Only then can we experience a true and unwavering indestructibility. See, I believe that if we want to experience indestructibility, again, this lack of wavering or being pushed around by what's happening in the world around us, that we have to have an indestructible goal and to pursue that goal with indestructible means. For instance, a lot of my job here at TLCC is with the privilege that I have of, of leading certain uh, uh, team members here. Uh, the big parts of my job, two things, are to help people to develop a good goal, a right goal, and to give them the resources to go and to achieve that goal. Right? If someone has the wrong goal but the right resources, then they're going to end up in the wrong place, and it was all for naught. Or if someone has the right goal but the wrong resources, then they're never actually going to go and meet that goal. Similarly, I believe that if we look at our lives on a bigger scale, working towards a bigger goal, if we don't have the right tools to get there or the right goal of where we're going in mind, then we will inevitably end up in the wrong place or experience a lot of brokenness in that journey. You see, God has a promised future for us. He has an eternity planned for us in a new heavens and new earth where all things will be made right and all things will be reconciled and to exist in peace. And that, to me, is the ultimate indestructible vision and goal for the future. And Christ is empowering us today with his indestructible, unbreakable power to live today in our daily lives, to be able to work towards that indestructible end. And when we do, when we put our hope in Christ's promised future and that he will bring us there today, no matter the circumstances in our world around us, that we can experience a sense of indestructibility. Oftentimes we can look at our circumstances, we can look at the world around us, and our hope falls. I'd like for you to think for a second, if you would, about what your most basic desires and drives are in life. If you would, to kind of truly self-assess. For a lot of us, that might be uh, uh, things like, like social status, or wanting to be seen a certain way. Maybe it's financial stability. Maybe it's uh, spouses or certain kinds of friendships or relationships. Maybe it's a certain kind of job. Maybe it's having house or security, whatever those things are. Everyone think about that for a second. What is that thing that when you wake up in the morning, you're driven every single day to go and do what you do? That's your goal. Now, can you imagine that thing failing? Can you imagine that thing not working, right? A lot of the things that I consider goals, like 100%. Like there are a lot of things that I want to do, and I can imagine it not working and failing and being broken. Therefore, that is what I would call a destructible goal. It's something that can fail. And so if that's the thing that we're putting our hope in, then we are putting ourselves in a position to where we can experience brokenness and never feeling 
like we are truly experiencing an indestructible life that is strong and confident and founded on something solid. But then, if you believe what uh, Christians tend to believe, that there is an indestructible future, an eternity that God will, has promised us that he will bring about, of a new world in which all things are made right. Can you picture that in your mind? And then think, if you trust in the promises of scripture, can you imagine that thing not happening? Can you imagine that thing failing or being broken once, it, once, once it's put together? Well, if we trust in God, then we cannot. And therefore, we have an indestructible goal that no matter what, we trust that God will get us there. And therefore, even today, when we experience the difficulties around us, we're trusting that God is going to bring us where we're supposed to go. Does that make sense? All right, so I think the book of Colossians has a, a lot to say about this and the way that we might approach going after a future goal and the way that we get there. You see, uh, uh, in this book that we've been reading, the Apostle Paul and Timothy are, reading, uh, to, to, are writing to the church in Colossae. It's a first century, likely modern-day Turkey. And he's, they're encouraging them in their faith and reminding them of some essential truths that they may have gotten off track on. You see, the, the major issue, it appears, is that there is a group of people who are promoting a certain kind of philosophy that made the major goal of life, the essential desire, to have transcendental, esoteric, spiritual experiences. Weird stuff, but basically meaning like revelatory spiritual visions of the divine, uh, of experiences of the spiritual world. Uh, imagine like crazy ecstatic worship experiences and all this kind of stuff. That was their most basic and fundamental goal of what they were seeing. That was kind of like the, the penultimate human experience. And so these people have this as the goal, and they're using a mix of this philosophy of pagan philosophy, of Jewish thought, and sprinkling in some Christian thought into it. And so they're using this and saying, hey, do these practices, believe this stuff, and you're going to get the thing that is the penultimate human experience. We see a glimpse of this in Colossians 2, 8, where, where Paul is writing to them saying, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, like we're speaking of, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. They are... Uh, in fear of capturing this thought system of hope and what they're looking forward to, but Paul knows that it is hollow and deceptive. And the reality is, is that I believe that there are a lot of things in the world trying to capture our thoughts and capture our hope. Like some of the things maybe you thought about earlier uh, in your mind. Maybe some of those things are being promoted, but in fact, they might not be bad in themselves, but as your entire hope, they are hollow and deceptive. They are not indestructible and strong. We have to understand something about this, though, is that, yes, things are trying to capture our atten attention, but there's something weird and kind of difficult to completely understand about all of this. You see, in this book, Paul references something that is called rulers, powers, authorities, elemental, spiritual forces, which are trying to distort our future goals and the way to get there. Here are a few of the passages in Scripture, uh, uh, in Colossians, about this. 
Colossians 2.8, which we just read, but it's worth reading again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the elemental spiritual forces are promoting this hollow and deceptive philosophy. He, Christ, this is a different section here, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So there's this sense of battle, and the rulers and authorities are against the good. And then Colossians, later in Colossians 2, if Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you still submit to regulations? And he goes on. So there's this sense of being with the elemental spiritual forces and spirits of the world, and then dying to them and entering into new, new kind of life. Now, what are these authorities and rulers and, and, and elemental spirits? Again, it sounds super weird, and in a sense, it, it really is, but it's really important to understand that in the worldview of Scripture and the truth of what Scripture is telling us about our world and in a lot of our own personal experiences, and I'm sure many of you can testify to this, it's important to remember that there is more than just this physical world. That in the big scope of creation, that there is a spiritual world. So there's a physical world, there's a spiritual world, but it's not just like the spiritual world is out over there and the physical world is here, that there is an enmeshing, in a sense, or engagement and interaction between the spiritual world and the physical world. And just as there are uh, bad, evil things that can happen in the physical world, so there are bad and evil spiritual realities. Again, a lot of this seems kind of weird, and in a sense it kind of is, uh, and if you want to talk more about it, then we can certainly do that uh, and help to explain that and even stories about uh, what that looks like. So there's these evil spiritual realities that can influence our world today, and particularly as scholars look at how it's indicated in scripture, is that these evil spiritual forces want to infiltrate and utilize structures and systems in the world to, nev to negatively impact us and to keep us from our God-inspired dreams. Now, I would be hesitant to say what this always looks like in our world today. I want to be careful about saying that something is influenced by negative realities, but we can certainly look at systems and institutions like slavery, for instance, in the past, and go, there was certainly something evil that was manifesting itself there. And we could say rulers and powers and authorities trying to do something fundamentally evil to divert all people away from what God had for them. So they are trying to, even today, to use the philosophies of the world and to pull us away from the life that God has for us. That a lot of the narratives in society or things that you are told to put hope in, or just think about like even like marketing campaigns where it's like, I don't know, every kiss begins with K. It's like, that's the dream, <laughs> right? Um, you have to go to K in order to experience your God-inspired future. All right, now multiply that by 20,000. I'm not saying that's bad necessarily, right? But if you put your hope in that thing, then that is a bad thing to put your hope in. Now, this is kind of what's happening to the Colossians. Hey, go get this crazy spiritual experience. This is the penultimate whole version of life. Here's this deceitful philosophy. It's going to get you where you want to go. 
Now, I think this can happen uh, 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 to us even in well-intentioned ways, even for those of us who are Christians. For instance, I think that, that we can sometimes have a diminished view of who Jesus is, similar to how the Colossians, some of them had a, had a diminished view of who Jesus is. All right, be with pagan and Jewish tradition and get me this thing. I think sometimes we can do that in our world today. Sometimes we can make Jesus into our, our like cosmic Santa Claus. And we make our wish list and we, you know, pray for these things and we hope that we get these things. And Jesus' primary uh, purpose for us is you get like, you know, one out of those 10 things that you actually hope for if you're good enough. And then we get that thing that we desire. I'm being cut. Now, we can do this in a lot of different ways. Again, what are those things that you desire that we talked about and think about it? And often all we do is pray for those things. And we merely view Jesus as a tool to our own goals or our own ends. And maybe it could look like a lot of different things. Maybe your, again, your ultimate goal is financial stability or, or, or relationships. Or maybe you come to church so that you can have community. Or maybe it's a good networking opportunity or whatever these things might be. Now, remember that none of these things are bad in themselves. None of those things are bad in themselves. And praying for those things is certainly great. Like God tells us to do that. But when we diminish our understanding of Jesus and make him into the cosmic Santa or a networking opportunity or whatever it might be, a relationship building opportunity, we diminish who he is to be a mere tool or means for the things that we desire. And we have to remember that Jesus isn't the cosmic Santa, that Jesus is king. That Jesus is much bigger. In Jesus, there's so much more happening, a foundation of indestructibility for what we desire uh, uh, in Christ to receive both now and in the future. And so let's look at this by, um, by unpacking uh, the song that our worship team, the scripture that our worship team based their song on, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I think Paul's really emphasizing this idea of the, the, the grandeur of who Jesus is. And he's looking at a people who have diminished who Christ is, and he's presenting the great breadth and depth of who Jesus is and why we have to rely on him for both our present and our future. So I'm gonna read Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and I'm just gonna, as we go along, I'll kind of break it apart because there are some weird terms and weird concepts, and I think it really helps if we can understand what's going on here to get the full, uh, uh, the full picture. So Paul starts off reading this hymn, and he says, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does this mean, image? Image is a term that refers to our job if we are image bearers. So it's a vocational word. For instance, when we hear being made in the image of God, a lot of us think back to Genesis, where it talks about us being image bearers. Now, a lot of people have theorized what that means, but most likely it is a vocational term, meaning it is, it is speaking of a task that we have as image bearers, being representatives, image bearers, representatives of God in the world doing his loving rule and implementing justice and peace and joy and beauty. So we are reflective of him and who he is into the world. 
If you look back in the first century, uh, not the first century, in the ancient Near Eastern context in which Genesis was likely uh, written, if you look at other groups of people who were non-Jews, they had a view of their deities being distant and not necessarily engaging and interacting with the world in a personal way in which Jews and Christians have believed that he does. And they would, so they would view themselves as being governors or vice regents who were representing their distant deity in the world. So that's what the, the ruler of their people would do for the people. Well, Genesis, because they had, you know, linguistic similarities and they use similar terms for different kinds of things. When it's talking about us being made in the image of God, it's talking about us having a certain quality of who we are, a certain value predicated on the purpose that God has given us as the ultimate creative act that is meant to help to foster the beauty and peace of all other creation. So that's what the image component means. Now, what does it mean that the Son is the image of the invisible God? Is that Jesus is the ultimate image bearer. That though we are all image bearers, Jesus, it's like the, the capital T, capital I image bearer. And where we messed up and we've made mistakes in properly leading the world as we're supposed to, as, as God's creatures, that Jesus came to be the ultimate image bearer who does not make those mistakes and leads the world uh, as we were intended to lead the world. Is everyone tracking? That, well, I don't feel very confident now. But I'll take a laugh, so. Um, so then it says, the firstborn over all creation. Is there a birth order in the Godhead? Was Jesus born at a certain point? It's a fair question to ask, but we have to realize that firstborn is, is indicating a value, not a temporal order of events. So it's not saying Jesus was literally born at a certain time. Firstborn in this context had a lot of meaning. If you were the firstborn son, for instance, you're getting the inheritance, all this kinds of stuff. I have a, a really scary inkling that the firstborn son in the Smith family is going to get all of the inheritance as well. I'm the third child, so it's not going to behoove me, but uh, there's definitely a favorite child in the family. I'm preaching for him, so you think that I would be the, Never mind. Um, so Jesus is the ultimate image of God. And he's the firstborn, he's the ultimate uh, 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 valuable supreme being. And in him, all things were created, the world was created in him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, meaning both this physical world that we talked about and the spiritual world, all created by God. And guess what? The authorities and the powers and all the systems that exist, guess what? God is still over all of them. They weren't separately created by evil or something. That God still has authority, even though they're messing things up. Jesus still has a bigger picture and is working things out. All things have been created through him and also for him. Now, then we see he is before all things. That is a temporal thing. And in him, all things hold together. He sustains and hold life together. And he is the head of the body of the church. We are the body of Christ, the hands and the feet, and so on. And Jesus is the head leading us. Now, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This is a little bit of a different sense than the first firstborn that we talked about. The firstborn of the dead means that he experienced a resurrection into a glorified body before any of us. 
See, our future hope is that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth and that we will be bodily resurrected into the new heavens and the new earth and then have an eternity of peace and shalom and what God intended things to be. Well, Jesus is the first one who did that and he's still in his glorified body. And then it says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he came first and this gives him the supremacy. He is supreme over the world. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things are being reconciled into Jesus. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, everything he's reconciling. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus sacrificed himself to be able to reconcile everything, things on heaven, in heaven, and things on earth. All right, hope you guys have a little bit of a better understanding of the flow of what's going on. And really, it's emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But now I want to look at, uh, I, I want to mention something here, which is uh, if you split it up into three different stanzas, which is likely how it was originally written, you can see a little bit more of the meaning and the intention that it has here. So if we see the first uh, uh, stanza, which we read, so I won't read through it too much, but what we see here is that Jesus is the, the one through whom the world was created. All things. Jesus is the foundation of the beginning of the world. All things were created by him, and he is over all things that he created. He is the firstborn. He's the ultimate image bearer. And then in the middle stanza, we see that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That Jesus is sustaining all of life. And then we see in the third stanza that all things are being reconciled to himself. So what we see here is that Jesus is the beginning, Jesus is the middle, holding all things together, and Jesus is going to make all things right in the end. And I love this when we look at this passage. This is one of my favorite parts, is to see how much the word, how many times the word all is used. The firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. All things have been created through him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. All his fullness dwells in him. Reconcile to himself all things. It's as if Paul is shouting to the Colossians, Jesus is so much bigger than you are letting him be in your lives. That sometimes we make our hope for the future something other than Jesus. Sometimes we put our hope right now in something other than Jesus. But this early hymn reminded all of us that both right now and in the future, Jesus is supreme. And so when you feel like you're on rocky foundation... When you feel like you're looking at something that's going to be broken or something that might not work out in your life practically, when you're looking for a certain kind of experience to be the, the, the ultimate thing in your life, you can remind yourself, I feel shaky right now. I'm watching the news and I feel shaky right now. I'm thinking about the economy. I just lost my job. I'm worried about how I'm parenting my kids. I'm worried about all really important things to worry about, but underneath it all, Jesus is going, I created this, 
I hold all things together and I'm reconciling all things. So I encourage all of us to think about what it means to put our hope on Jesus. Now, this might just seem like, uh, or maybe it does or maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But stuff like this can sometimes feel like an emotional appeal, right? It's like this kind of thing, or you hear this in society, it's an emotional crutch. Like, well, here's a nice idea, a nice story, a nice myth to kind of tag on to the difficulties of your life so that you can persist on and have some sort of false hope. Well, I think we see that Jesus is the answer, not just in some kind of uh, emotionally rehabilitating way, but Jesus is the, he's the true answer. And that without Jesus as the answer, there's actually no reason to really have hope in our world. For instance, uh, uh, in the early 2000s, a group of philosophers and scientists and kind of pseudo-academics uh, grouped together and developed a movement called New Atheism. Has anyone ever heard of New Atheism? New Atheism? New Atheism? Couple people? No, I just said a couple people, but I don't know if there's anyone. New Atheism was a really influential group that developed in the early 2000s. Um, of people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and a group of, they call them the, it's the five, the, the five horsemen of new atheism, I believe, is what they call them, which is a pretty crazy name. It's kind of a cool name, but terrible results. Nonetheless, they developed this new atheism movement that essentially wanted to, in Nietzschean fashion, destroy uh, argumentatively the idea of the existence of God. And so they wrote a lot of popular level books, like best, best, best sellers, uh, that a lot of people were reading and they started to believe, oh wow, yeah, God doesn't exist, God doesn't exist. And the interesting thing about it is that it, it had an evangelistic component to it. It wasn't just an academic discipline, they wanted to influence pop culture and to say, hey, God doesn't exist, you need to not believe this. And interestingly, they, they even had a bus campaign, I think it was in the UK, where it said, stop worrying, God doesn't probably exist, now go and enjoy your life. They would have the signs, massive banners taped on buses, taped on buildings. And then so I have to ask the question, how does God not existing help me to enjoy my life or to stop worrying? We'll come back to that question in a moment. We have to look at what ended up happening to new atheism. Within 20 years, because like right now, new atheism, new atheism as a movement is essentially defunct. Kind of intriguing. Massive movement, intellectual movement in academics, and I typically last for a while. But over time, what happened is you had all the different atheists who were a part of the group. And by the way, I don't mean atheist in necessarily a pejorative sense. I appreciate a lot of people who are thinking this way, trying to think the right way, and are well-intentioned. I obviously disagree with a lot of the thought, but in a, in a hopefully a, a respectable kind of way. But a lot of these atheists came together, and they're like, yeah, 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 God exists. Now, what do we do about it? What's our purpose? What's our goal that we're moving to? What exactly are we fighting for? If there's no God, and there's no ultimate eternal future and meaning, then what is the purpose that we're working to today? And so some of them wanted to go and advocate for human rights. 
And some of them wanted to advocate for uh, different academic ideas or freedom of speech. Some of them didn't want to do anything at all and just say, hey, if someone asks me, I'll tell them what I think. And the whole group ended up fragmenting up to such an extent that the movement doesn't exist anymore. And why? Because they had no indestructible goal and future to rely on. They had no hope that undergirded them, that guided them, even when they felt like they were swaying off the path, which we all will, there was nothing to bring them back with hope and purpose. And so the group disintegrated. You see, today, we have a hope and a purpose to where even when it feels like we might be swaying off the path, God is bringing us back together because he's saying, I'm reconciling all things to myself. You see, Jesus isn't just a nice idea to help us feel like we have hope or a purpose. Jesus is actually essential for us to have true hope, everlasting hope that will, that, that will never fail us. One of the great difficulties is that, as I said, we'll often sway off the path and there are many things that are trying to capture our thought and to convince us that they are a goal worth having and that they know how we can actually get us to that goal. And evil and brokenness is still present in trying to get us to fear or to experience fragility and sway towards things other than Christ. But we must remember that Jesus has defeated the evil powers and rulers and authorities and elemental spiritual forces that are trying to make us destructible. As Colossians 2 says here, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, where we are experience brokenness in our lives and sin and don't do image-bearing things, and we do the things that are not of God, you see, we experience consequences for those things. We experience broken relationships when we sin against someone. We make bad decisions in our lives, and it takes us off the path and ultimately, those kinds of negative decisions end up breaking our relationship with God to where there's, there's, there, there's not a path to him because we have cut off the path because we want desires that are not of God. But Jesus came to the world, and he came here, and he bore the weight of the consequences of our own sins and nailed them to the cross so that all of, all of the, the, the bad things that we were going to experience, Jesus, Jesus experienced in our place so that we are free with him to be image bearers as we are intended to be. Whereas scripture says, rulers and priests. But not only are we now alive in Christ, but Jesus, by his death on the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, there are things trying to tempt us with hollow and deceptive philosophy and in systems and institutions and things in the world. But we have to remember that when, J when, when Jesus came, he defeated the evil powers and rulers of the world. Now, Jesus is going to come back, if you will, and finish the battle at the end of time. 
But right now, when we feel like we're facing the pressure of the temptation of the world, and we're watching different things, and we feel like we're swaying, and that's evil trying to push us to not have true hope in Jesus Christ. But those evil powers that are trying to influence us, they know that the victory started when Jesus died on the cross, that it will be finished when he comes back, and right now they're limping and crawling their way to try and impact us. We can have trust in the future. We can have trust that Jesus defeated the evil powers that are trying to negatively impact us right now. And we can have trust that Jesus is working within us right now through his power, by his spirit, to bring us to the goal and the hope that he has for us. Thank you, guys. Amen.